Amen. You may be uh, take your seats, and as you do so, if you take your Bibles, and let us continue in our exposition of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, today we're at 1 Samuel chapter 26. Chapter 26. Sometimes I think we just need to pause and recognize what a, an amazing privilege this is. That here we sit in the comfort of the sanctuary and we have before us what we hold to be the true word of the living God, the creator of the universe, who speaks. And his speech has been recorded for us and he's giving us the privilege of hearing him. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshmon? Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David. Not to seek him to bring him back to place of a nice place of honor, but to seek to destroy him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, and the commander of his army. And Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abiashah, the son of Zeruai, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abiashah said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abiashah went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. And then Abishah said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishah, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless or bloodless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let's go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. And no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of a hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? 
For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, It's my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they've driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's a spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. And the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious. Notice he doesn't say in your sight. May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You'll do many things, and you will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. The word of God for the people of God. When I read this text, I can't help but to hear Dolly Parton singing in my ear. And this is, I'm showing my age, singing, Here You Come Again. Here you come again. And here they come again, the Ziphites, right? Doing what Ziphites do. That is, rat out David. And here he comes again, Saul. Doing what Saul does. Seeking to kill David. Always has that spear, doesn't he? Ready to hurl it and pin David to the wall. So much for that confession a couple of chapters ago. And here comes David again. This time for the third time. And that all automatically makes me think of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted three times. Here comes David. And a third time remaining by the grace of God innocent of Saul's blood. By God's grace being found faithful, faithful to the covenant. By God's grace, being found covenantally righteous. 
Faithfulness and righteousness. Faithfulness and righteousness. That's the sort of king Israel needed. Those sort of counterintuitive attributes of a king. Faithful. Not to his own ambitions, not to, the, to his people's desires. Faithful to the Lord. Righteousness. Not doing that which necessarily just works or doing that which gets you ahead, but doing that which is right in the sight of Almighty God. Faithfulness and righteousness here in this man at this time by grace. This man David. A man after God's own heart. Let's ask a few questions of the text. What did this faithful and righteous David do? Second, let's ask, how did he do it? How was it possible? He's a sinner just like us. How many of you would have just taken Abishai's uh, advice? Here, take the spear. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. How did David not have Saul executed? And why does that even matter to us, to you, today? First, what did David do? David, uh, I think, did something that was proactively audacious and something that was psychologically brilliant. Proactively audacious. I, ha I have to share a story that I read in the commentary by uh, Dale Ralph Davis. He tells of a Civil War battle, tells of a Confederate general by the name of Leonidas Polk, and the battle was the Battle of Perryville. And Polk and his men found themselves under what Polk thought was friendly fire. So Polk is able to gather his men. They're able to circle all the way around to the backside of those who had been firing on them. And Polk from behind demands that the colonel identify himself. And he did as the leader of a regiment from Indiana. It wasn't friendly fire. And now that colonel was asking who this man was, who was asking him. Polk had misjudged. But Polk then, defensively audacious, because of the time of the day it was, it was getting dark. And because Polk had on a dark jacket, he decided to call the bluff. And Polk said to the colonel, I'll show you who I am, colonel, in just a bit. Cease fire at once. And then he proceeded, he decided I might as well play out this hand. He rode his horse in front of the entire enemy line, acting as if he is a Union general. And when he gets to the end of the line and his horse, he picks up the pace. He hurries back to his men, and he says to his men, I've looked at those boys pretty closely, probably in a good southern accent now, and I find there's no mistake in who they are. You may get up and go at them. <laughs> now, Polk was being audacious, and he had to be defensively. David 
It's being audacious, what? Offensively. Offensively. It's, it's an audacious move to walk into a camp with just one other guy, a camp of 3,000 men, and go and steal the king's spear and his canteen or his water jug. And that's what he does. It's psychologically brilliant as well. How in the world could David and his 600-man army of a bunch of ragtag misfits, marginalized, defeat Saul, Abner, and 3,000 crack soldiers? These were chosen men. Did you notice what it said? They chose these men. These are fighters. They're great. How in the world could you do it? Well, audaciously. But if you could pull it off, if you could go in there, get the spear, get the jug, get something of Saul, get out, then what are you going to do? You're going to shame them. You're going to embarrass them. And you maybe might strike the fear of Yahweh into them. A captured spear and a canteen. Spear. That dreaded spear again. The one that Saul was always throwing, the one that was always whizzing by David's ear. That spear, once again. Spear symbolized that David had disarmed the king. Remember in chapter 24, David had cut off a corner of the robe of Saul symbolizing that he had disrobed the king. Here, he symbolically and he literally disarms Saul. And the canteen or the, or, or the water jug. Why do soldiers carry water jugs? Why do they carry canteens? To sustain them, to sustain their life on marches and in battles, right? You've got to have water. Water is what? Life-sustaining. You steal the spear, you disarm him. You steal his canteen, his water jug. You have symbolically what? Put him to death. Robe in chapter 24. A feast that is fit for king, chapter 25. Spear and life, chapter 26. Who is the rightful king? David. Now how did he do it? Isn't it obvious? by his own cunning and clever plan, by God's grace, right? You saw that, didn't you? Notice verse 12, one more time. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. Now, if you have been reading up to that point, and it's the first time you have read it, you're kind of wondering to yourself, here's David and here's Abishai. They're coming into this camp of 3,000 men, crack soldiers, wouldn't they have set up guards? Where are the guards? And they're, they're carrying on this conversation. I mean, even if they've been whispering, why didn't anybody hear them? Are y'all nuts? Shut up. Be quiet. Plan this ahead of time. Don't talk right now. They'll kill you. They'll wake up. And there's just two of you, and there's 3,000 of them. How was this happening that nobody was waking up? We're told. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. 
David did what he did by the grace of God. And he also did it through faith. By grace, through faith. Notice the beautiful picture of faith David gives us. First of all, it's a, it's a patient faith, isn't it? Verse 9. It's a patient faith. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? He's patient. It's an imaginative faith too, isn't it? Notice verse 10. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. See what he's doing? He knows he can trust in God. I can put my faith in God. But now how is God going to save me? How is God going to do this? And he uses his imagination. You know we can do that sometimes? You're in a pickle, you're in a stress, you're going through this problem, you can't figure out any way to handle it. And you turn instead into the Lord in faith. And you say, wow, Lord, I could see, maybe you would do this, or maybe you would do that, or maybe you would do this, but I know you can do it. God gives us minds for a reason. God gives us imaginations for a reason. Let's use them. Let's use them in prayer. Let's offer up unto God, Lord, I, you know, I, I'm limited in the way I can see things, but I'm kind of looking at this scenario, and I can see how this would bring glory to Jesus, this would bring glory to Jesus, this would bring glory to Jesus, this would. But you know, you may have an even better way. Use your imagination in prayer. It's an imaginative faith. It's also an obedient faith, right? Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He is decided. He will obey. Faith is evidenced in, through what? Obedience. It's a humble faith. Go down to verse 18. If my eyes can find it. Verse 18. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. What's David doing here? He is offering up the possibility that it could be because of David's own what? Sin. He is humble. He's examining himself. He's ready to make confession. He's ready to make sacrifice if that's the case. It's a humble faith. But the one I really want you to see is that it's a longing faith. Verses 19 and 20, the rest of 19. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day. Notice, this is, what Dave, this is David's angst. This is what's bothering him. This is what's weighing heavily on him. Yes, he's being chased repeatedly by Saul and armies. But in that chase, what's happening? And this is what's bothering him. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. It's as if 
This is what David is saying. It's as if I'm a covenant breaker. I'm outside of the covenant. I'm being pushed out of the covenant community. Get out of here. You don't have any, you don't have any inheritance among God's people. No share in the heritage of Yahweh saying, go serve other gods. I've had to flee to the Philistines. I don't want to be out of the church. I don't want to be out of the covenant community. I don't want to be away from the ordinances of Almighty God. I don't want to be out of the way of those covenant blessings that belong to God's people as they are with God's people in God's sight. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. I am so glad a modern day evangelical didn't go up to David and say, David, what's the big deal? Don't you know God's omnipresent? He can be worshipped anywhere. So if you're in Philistia, it's fine, it's fine. If you want to go out to the beach, it's fine. You want to go into the mountains outside of Israel? Not a problem. God can be worshipped anywhere. And why would you want to be with those covenant folks? A bunch of hypocrites. They're out there trying to chase you down and kill you. Go to the coffee shop. I'm afraid this ancient David has much to teach us. Everyone here, as far as I know, have been marked off as Christians through the waters of baptism. Most of you, I'm sure, profess to be Christians. Let me ask you, do you have the appetite of a Christian? Do you long for holy worship? Do you long and ache to be with the people of God? Those that you've made covenant vows unto the Lord alongside of. We, we, we oftentimes will say, yes, we are sacred. We are dedicated unto the Lord. But we oftentimes don't act like it. We would never claim to be secular humanists, would we? Would we? Would we? But we'll act like it. I'm going to quote Davis. To be cut off from the ordinances of public worship is David's most severe grief. Then Dave, uh, Davis asks himself, would that cause me such anguish? Christians have surpassed David in privileges, but few have approached him in appetite. That's gold. Christians have surpassed David in privilege, but few have approached him in appetite. His is a faith to emulate. Why does this matter? Last question. We need models. We need models of faith, and here we have one. Here we have a fellow sojourner. Here we have one going through difficulties. Here we have one who's weary. Here we have one who is enduring more than most of us ever will. 
And we see God's ways with him, don't we? He's not sinless. He's not perfect. He needs the Savior. And yet, what is he being? Covenantly what? Faithful. Righteous. We are David, that's true, but in many fallen ways we are like him. And in covenant blessings we surpass him. We've got so much more, brothers and sisters. We've got this. And you know, note how tenderly God deals with David. Particularly in the middle of his weariness in the battle. Particularly in the middle of his lament. God brings him. If you, if you want to see his laments, go to the Psalms. He laments all that's happening. And yet in the midst of that lament, God gives him tokens of grace. Saul gives him a verbal assurance. <laughs> that's worth a whole lot, isn't it? But God gives him tokens of grace. Far, far, far greater. He gives him a spear. He gives him a water jug. And by his speeches and by his psalms of lament, we know David was weary from all of this. He needed a token of grace, and God gave it. Again, uh, just sometimes Davis has fabulous illustrations. And this particular week, he's had some great ones. Second one talks about a story that the Puritan John Flavel tells or told. Flavel tells or told of a Mrs. Honeywood. Mrs. Honeywood was an earnest Christian. Earnest, godly woman who nevertheless felt like God had abandoned her, that God had cast her off, that she was without even saving hope. Not, not merely that God wouldn't care tenderly for her in her everyday life, but that she might even be cast eternally off. So the minister goes and he sees her, and the minister's sitting there and he's hearing this, and yet the minister knows Mrs. Honeywood. And so he's marshalling every argument he can gather to try to tell her how wrong she was, how, how her desperate conclusions were all wrong, and she wouldn't have any of it. So she grabs a glass that's on the table, fragile glass. And Mrs. Honeywood says, Sir, I am as sure to be damned as this glass is to be broken. And so what'd she do? She picked it up and she did what? She hurled it at the floor. And did it break? No. No. And the minister had all he needed to press home the abiding love of Christ. Tokens of grace. A spear, a water jug, and an unbroken glass. Or maybe it's a visit from a friend. Or maybe even a visit from a pastor. Or maybe it's a smile and a word of encouragement from a fellow church member. Or maybe it's a work project that goes inexplicably well. You weren't expecting that. And yet there it was. 
Maybe it's a card in the mail with the name Josie Barbie. Maybe it's just a breath of fresh air. You just breathe in and it feels so good. Maybe even a sermon illustration. Definitely the preached word. Definitely bread and wine. Tokens of grace. Dear ones, God sends us tokens of grace and tokens of grace and tokens of grace and tokens of grace. Do we notice? Do we thank Him? David received them and and David, as we've seen in these chapters, while not sinless, while not, not morally perfect, he does what? He continues to trust in his covenant Lord. His covenant Lord, who was through these episodes, was preparing David to be the king the people needed. All the while, he hasn't shed Saul or Nabal's blood. He's a model of faith, but we need more than a model of faith, particularly when we've blown it. Right? How many of you have blown it? This week? Maybe this morning? We need a fellow pilgrim. We need someone who will point us the way. We need a guide. I saw a picture, I think it was even last night, of, a, of an Indian scout uh, kneeled down and standing beside, his, beside him was a Scottish Highlander who had become a fur trader in the Americas. And that was kind of an interesting blend of types of people, both tribal. The Scot was being benefited by that guide. We've got a far greater guide. We've got David. David pointing us, pointing us through his faith, through his longing for covenant community and worship. Pointing us who have too often cold hearts. Pointing us to the one who, unlike David, will, will, will never blow it. We're going to find out, as, as you well know, the wonderful David here will be a David who falls. He will be a David who sheds blood. In building his kingdom, he sheds blood. But David points us to the one who builds his kingdom, not through the shedding of blood of others, but through the shedding of of his own blood, the son of David. And so David here is like that proverbial beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And it's not in David. It's in the son of David. So for those of you who have blown it, your hearts have been too cold. You've doubted. You have been impatient. Your faith has not always been evidenced in obedience. Look not to David, look not to Lee. Look to King Jesus.
King Jesus, who took your cold heart, took your disobedience, took your impatience, and nailed them to the cross in his own flesh so that you may live, so that you may love, so that you may lament in this world and place your trust in him. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, I would pray that by your mysterious and sovereign spirit, you would turn every inner eye that we have, that everyone here has, to Christ. To Christ. To Christ alone. To the heavenly intercessor we have, who based on all he has done, is pleading our case before you, O Father. May we lament what we find in ourselves that is old and ugly and vile. May we lament the pains and the agonies of the world around us. And in this lament, not despair, but turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who enabled so long ago David to be faithful and David to be righteous, the same Lord and Savior who clothes us in His righteousness and fills us with His Spirit that we might live lives of covenant faithfulness. Oh Lord, this is what we need. A Savior interceding for us and a comforter working in us. And that's what we pray for now. Amen.